0: Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the December 20, 2016 edition of Ask a Leader. My guests today are John Dunn, president, CEO of Planned Parenthood of Orange and San Bernardino counties. At all those updates about his organization, how it's maintaining room at the inn. Today, he'll wear both healthcare delivery and political advocacy hats. In the second segment, we'll convene a small salon on science and faith with UCI professor of biological sciences, Francisco Ayala. We'll be right back after a short break. back to the show, folks. My first guest is John Dunn, President, CEO of Planned Parenthood of Orange, San Bernardino Counties, where he has served since October 1993, having presided over making this become one of the largest in the nation, serving over 180,000 clients annually with a broad array of health care and health education services. Under John Dunn's leadership, Planned Parenthood of Orange San Bernardino Counties has recently initiated an innovative care delivery model called Melody Women's Health, which provides high-quality, fully integrated, comprehensive primary care and reproductive care in a single, convenient, comfortable setting designed just for women in their reproductive years. John Dunn has served three terms as board chair of the Coalition of Orange County Community Clinics, two terms as a board member for California Family Health Council, and is a member of the Orange County Healthcare Advocacy and Healthcare Revenue Enhancement Task Force, which they're, they're dedicated to improving advocacy and funding for healthcare services for the indigent Prior to coming to Planned Parenthood, John Dunn served as chief financial officer at Care Options in Garden Grove, executive director of the Newton, Massachusetts Multi-Service Center, and division director at Mentor Inc. in Cambridge, Massachusetts. John Dunn completed his undergraduate degree at Queens College City University of New York, his MBA at Northeastern University, and his master's in social work from Boston University. John Dunn, along with others, that's like Stephanie Kite, they've previously presented Planned Parenthood's case on the show. Today, he'll post us on where his affiliate is poised to go with the new political realities. He comes to us today from his office in the city of Orange. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, John Dunn.
1: Thank you, Claudia. Good morning.
0: Good morning. Okay, let's. I'm going to get this punchline out of the way first. as. According to The Cut, I guess that's a a fine women's magazine, Planned Parenthood has received more than 315,000 donations since the Trump presidency. I imagine you've racked up some more since this cut was made. And more than 82,000 folks, that's over a quarter of those, were made in the name of Indiana Governor and Vice President-elect Mike Pence. A gesture intended for the obvious effect, including Pence getting the thank you notes for each of those donations. I just love to see that (laughs) mailbag. So, maybe you've got a running count. There's more than that much coming in in his name.
1: You know, I don't actually, Claudia. Those are national numbers, and um, I, I'm, we're not tracking them locally. But I, I, I can say that there's been an overwhelming response from our donors uh, around the country and, of course, here locally as well. And so we are very appreciative of the community that has stepped up since the election. Um, we have a volunteer who comes in here weekly to write handwritten thank you notes to Mike Pence uh, it's one of the most fun things she says she does every week right now so those donations continue to come in and we certainly appreciate every one of them
0: well and now I'd like to congratulate you John Dunn, on all that you and yours have done to bring Planned Parenthood across the century line this last October it's now been in existence for hundred years amazing
1: yeah, uh, it's actually been 100 years. Nationally, um, we celebrated our local 50th anniversary last year, so uh, I, did, I didn't quite have all that much to do with the 100th year anniversary. Um, but Planned Parenthood certainly has been around for a very long time, even here in Orange County, and um, I can tell you with confidence we're, we're not planning to go anywhere. We oh. will be here regardless of what happens with this new administration.
0: Oh, I think, John Dunn, you can certainly own... The, the critical mass of leadership that's kept it so viable and, and inestimable in all of the the array of services that you avail women so i so i, I wouldn't be too uh, <laughs> i wouldn't qualify your your involvement at all well let's have you tell us about the state of the organization let's say the state of the state the state of the union kind of a thing up until November 2016
1: so planned parenthood had here locally a very successful year in 2016. We provided a broader array of services to more patients than at any time in our history. We've been exceeding all of our projections, both for the patients we're serving and our budget. And so the good news is whatever comes uh, with Donald Trump and, and the new Congress, we are entering 2017 from a position of, of great strength. Um, we have you know, more community involvement, more donations coming in than ever before, and certainly more volunteers stepping up as well. So pretty much by anything we measure, uh, we've had a tremendously successful year this year, and, and we're planning on a successful year again next year.
0: Well, and if we can break it down, if you could lead us through um, the the results here, your general numbers of what your affiliate has posted in delivering service over this last year, like the, the all those kinds of numbers that you keep track of, that and the numbers of of women receiving the Well Women annual checkups.
1: Sure, so um, the good news is that with the improvements in comprehensive sexuality education and access to contraception, some of which was uh, made available through uh, Obamacare, through healthcare reform, we've seen uh, rates of unintended pregnancy going down steadily and even, even among teens, it's been very encouraging. And so we've made a lot of progress in that area. We served, I think, as you mentioned, about a little over 100,000 patients with over 180,000 visits last year. Uh, We also, you mentioned Melody Women's Health. We've expanded that practice, which just really started a little more than uh, two and a half years ago to 6,000 enrolled primary care patients. And so that's going strong. Um, Last year, we certified more peer educators, which are teens who provide education to their peers in the schools in which they're enrolled. We had over 250 of them last year throughout the county. So that's very exciting. That's the biggest number we've ever had. So again, by pretty much any stat you could measure, uh, we've been really successful. And and the great news is what that means is that the folks in our community who need our care and, and support are getting it. They're getting access to what they need. And our goal is to always do that in a, a high-quality way here in Orange and San Bernardino Counties.
0: Well, John Dunn, if you could sort of break down more about the peer educators, that to me is that resonates with how that's it, a really effective way for outreach and education. Can, how long has that been in existence? And uh, where are you, if you know, where are you drawing those peers from in terms of the, uh, the Orange County, San Bernardino County areas? And how, well, how do people sign on to do that?
1: Sure. We've been providing a peer education program for over 10 years and what we do every year at the beginning of the school year is do outreach into the local public schools. Uh, a lot of it's word of mouth from peers from previous years, but any young person who's interested and wants to go through the training can become a peer educator and we are happy to have as many peer educators as as we can. You know, one of the things we've learned through the years is despite the internet, despite all of our efforts with our hotlines, all the ways that young people can get information, they still get an awful lot of information from their peers, and an awful lot of it is still wrong. So our goal with the program is to put uh, at least a couple of educators in virtually every school so that there's someone who actually knows the facts and can provide that to their peers and also is, is really fully cognizant of the services that are available here at Planned Parenthood so that they can help their friends Take advantage of those services if they want to and need them. So, uh, any teen who's interested could reach out to our health education department and you know express their interest. There is a quite extensive training involved. They actually become state certified peer reproductive health educators. But once they've gone through that training, uh, they work with our staff to do presentations and make themselves available to the other students in their schools. And I can tell you, they are the most amazing young people you ever want to meet. And uh, I think they have a great time doing it, and it's it's a wonderful experience.
0: Well, and, I, I'll honor, I'll, I'll promise you, John, that I'll bring on. I'd like to have a couple of them come on sometime. Sure, sure, uh, we can show us their wares. But uh, does this include the middle school as well as high school levels?
1: We only have high school peer, peer educators. Generally, actually, we have juniors and seniors, and, and that's just because we're looking for a level of maturity. Right. Uh, these they, are obviously sensitive subjects. So exactly. But do they
0: go to middle schools? The they, high school they students. They don't
1: generally. They're only in their own schools. Um, oh, okay. We are we are working with schools throughout the county now because it, um, it is now the law that all schools, middle and and high schools, have to provide comprehensive sex education, and so we are probably, well, I, not probably. We are the main resource for the school systems, they're all reaching out to us to understand the law, to understand what they need to do to comply with it, and we're providing that assistance at the middle school level and the high school level to bring all the schools in Orange County into compliance.
0: You know, as so I hang on to that, the middle school, because I, I know, like you know, that that's, the intervention is pretty important there with, with sexually transmitted infections and all, all kinds of things, so I'm, I, we'll, we'll be looking to how that can be, but but it may be a sort of a, a parental kind of permission piece that might make it a little bit more, uh, there might be more barriers to going to that particular level of education. So, you know, and, for- and
1: parents should know, there. I mean, there is an opt-out, so if parents yes. are uncomfortable, they can opt their student out of it. Right. But if they don't opt out of it, it comprehensive sex education will now be available both at the middle and high school levels.
0: Okay, that's good news. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is John Dunn, President and CEO of Planned Parenthood of Orange and San Bernardino Counties, posting us on how an organization known well over, uh, how it will continue to deliver full complementary productive health care amidst considerable uh, budget upheaval on the national level. We'll break into some of that now. So, in fact, what impact has the Affordable Care Act had on your affiliates' health care delivery?
1: Well, you mentioned Melody Women's Health, which is our, our comprehensive primary care program. That was our attempt to try to work in this new healthcare environment created by healthcare reform. And so it's actually been great uh, for our patients and our staff. Um, we've expanded the scope of what we do. We we used to only do reproductive health care now. We do comprehensive primary care and reproductive health care. Um, So we've brought on primary care physicians and uh, nurse practitioners and physicians assistants who are trained to do that. Uh, We've contracted with a number of uh, insurance companies in the area and are now providing comprehensive primary care in um, many of our locations, not all of them, but most of them. And It's been terrific because one of the things that I think is not well known about health care reform and particularly the expansion that happened here in California, including the Medi-Cal expansion, is that although many people have been able to get health insurance, there is still a shortage of providers who are interested in serving this population, particularly the Medi-Cal population, which has expanded uh, exponentially here in California. And so there are places in the county, uh, for example, the southern part of the county, where some of the um, IPAs and insurance companies we work with have literally told me we're it. We're the only practice that remains open to new Patients in their area, and that has to do with some some of the way things funding was done in healthcare reform. Uh, right. r- rates were increased for the first couple of years, but that ended after 2013, and so a lot of the private doctors closed their panels to MediCal patients. So it's been great for us because we're able to provide more comprehensive care. It's great for our patients, and even currently now, over 200 patients a month who come into our health centers for reproductive health care. Many of them have primary care physicians elsewhere, but they either can't get in or they want a particular method of contraception, a long-acting method that their primary care physician isn't familiar with, or they've been a long-time patient of ours and they're simply more comfortable coming to us for reproductive health care. Many of them, when they realize we now have Melody Women's Health and the ability to be their primary care provider, are actually opting to sign up with us and changing their primary care relationship. And so we're seeing growth of over 200 patients a month just with that change alone. And all we're doing is making patients aware of the fact that in addition to reproductive health, we now do comprehensive primary care, and and many of them each month are are saying that they would like to have us be their primary care provider. So it's continued to grow. As I mentioned earlier, we're up over 6,000 enrolled patients, and it it grows every single month. And uh, it's been a really vital, exciting part of what we do here at Planned Parenthood in Orange County.
0: And I guess that message has been very difficult to vie for attention with the much sensationalized kinds of developments. and I, I guess'll I'll just reverse a few questions here and get into that that you're you know you bring up that setting where women are really well served for so many different preventative kind of health care measures here. I want to raise then Congressman Tom Price has been nominated to head the Health and Human Services, and Congressman Mick Mulvaney is nominated to become Director of Office of Management and Budget. Between those prospective appointments and the leadership and majority in power in both the U.S. Senate and the House of Representatives, what do you envision will be the impact of their collective agendas on Planned Parenthood, both fiscally and operationally?
1: Well... Uh, you know, it's a little hard to predict what's going to happen, but I think it is very likely that the Congress will act quickly in the new year to attempt to disqualify us from the federal Medicaid program, which is, of course, Medi Cal here in California. Right. Um, they have done so already repeatedly. In fact, Tom Price authored the latest attempt, which was just last October. Now, in each of these occasions, up till now, President Obama has vetoed any attempt to defund Planned Parenthood. We don't know what Donald Trump will do. He's said varying things about Planned Parenthood uh, over the years, even in the election he said varying things. But one of those things is that he would defund us. And so we're planning for the worst and assuming that if the Congress acts to defund Planned Parenthood to eliminate our access to the Medi-Cal program, that Donald Trump will not veto that and that will become law. And there are a number of steps that we're planning right. to react to that, but um, that could happen even as early as late January, early February.
0: Well, John, though, how protective a measure is Obama's recent action to bar states from withholding federal funds? that That's the Title 10 money. Is that, that Title 10 money is not the, the Medi-Cal uh, fund source?
1: It's two different funding okay. streams, and although that, that act was very welcomed by us and it protects Planned Parenthood from state actions, it does not inoculate us from federal actions. And so regardless of that recent attempt to secure our funding, if the Congress acts, they could eliminate us from both the Title X family planning program and Medicaid or Medi-Cal, and that act would have no impact. It would not protect us.
0: Okay. Well, I'm not sure that message has gotten out there. So to what extent is your aff- affiliate, supported generously by well-heeled local donors.
1: Well, uh, we, we appreciate every donation that comes in, but the truth of the matter is it's, it only comprises about 5% of our that's it. revenue, and, and that's because California has had such an extraordinary Medi-Cal and state family planning program, which is called Family Pact, and so we've had great benefits for low-income folks here in California, and as a result our affiliate as well as many of the other affiliates in California have been able to serve many people and have grown quite large as a result of it. And so even though our fundraising is up, it, we can't possibly make up the gap if our access to federal funding streams were cut off.
0: So this this is a, a, a really a pretty awful scenario.
1: It, it is an awful scenario. However, I would say it, it is likely less awful here in California, only because I think that there's a good chance that the state w- would step in and, and support us if, if they had to. I will also say there's a number of steps we plan to take in advance of even that happening, among others, is, is litigation. There have been many attempts to do this similar kind of defunding at the state level, and virtually all of them have been overturned as unconstitutional by the courts. Okay. So we will immediately, we have a a whole cadre of lawyers uh, at our national office uh, and some pro bono counsel as well, looking at all the potential options and planning to litigate as soon as such a law is passed. And so obviously we don't know how it will go, but based on recent history, we're optimistic that we may be able to stop them in the courts. If we can't do that, at that point, then we would turn to Governor Brown. and. The legislature here, and ask them to step in and create state funding to help support what we do here, and and that is not unprecedented. There are particular types of services, such as abortion, which are funded through Medicaid, but since they're not federally funded, those are funded through state only dollars.
0: That's because of the Hyde Amendment, correct?
1: That, that's correct, and
0: that is an issue that the. Leadership coming into Congress would like to see the Hyde. That's a renewed amendment, and there is a movement afoot to make that a permanent amendment.
1: That's correct. I mean, the truth is, it's been here for it's been around for 40 years, so like it's it virtually permanent. permanent. But as you point out, it does have to be renewed annually, and we we also anticipate that they will make that a, a long-term a rule that everyone will have to abide by. And and the Hyde amendment, for those who might not know, is just states clearly that no federal funds can be used to support abortion services. And so th- that's the strange irony, Claudia. Yeah. Uh, there are all, there's all this discussion and anticipation that they're going to attempt to defund us by disqualifying us for Medicaid. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, throughout the country, there, there's no federal dollars supporting abortion services. So we know what they're after is uh, to limit women's access to abortion, And yet the one thing that will be completely unaffected by this cut that they're planning is abortion services. And that's true here in Orange County as well. We have state-only funds. We also codified abortion with the Reproductive Privacy Act in 2002 here in California. So regardless of what they do with Medicaid and regardless of even what they do with Roe v. Wade down the road, abortion will be safe and legal and funded here in California.
0: Well, let's say... Things dry up in border states. Are those women eligible to get services at Planned Parenthood in California?
1: Yes, most definitely. And And so um, they can get it
0: on a needs basis. They may not get Medicaid. They may not qualify for the state health care programs, but there might be a sliding scale kind of fee for them to uh, to benefit from your services.
1: Yes, that's correct. And and you know, should we go there? Although hopefully. We won't get there, and it it won't happen quickly because just replacing Antonin Scalia with an anti-choice justice will not give them the votes they need. So one of Anthony Kennedy, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, or Stephen Breyer will have to retire from the court and give them yet another vote. And and then it's an open question what John Roberts will do. But the point is if they get there and they overturn Roe v. Wade, uh, we would be prepared along with the other California affiliates to step up our abortion services, put programs in place to help even fund women to be able to travel here and get care. And it would be provided, as you mentioned, on a sliding fee scale. So people would have access based on their ability to pay.
0: Before I ask about the number of states that are where it's been codified, it's been made constitutionally um, sound in uh, 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 abortion on demand. I, I'll ask that at the end there, but I you I don't think I gave you a chance to finish. You were listing a number of things that Planned Parenthood intends to do with these big funding cuts anticipated with the, the new administration, the new majorities in the, in Congress. You mentioned the litigation option and then the, the state government uh, and legislative support. What Were there any more that you wanted to mention, John?
1: Well, I don't really want to go into a whole lot more detail than that. I, I actually don't think we'll need to. Uh, I I believe that Governor Brown and the legislative leadership are not going to want to allow Donald Trump and this Congress to ruin people's lives here in California. They've they've said that really quite strongly. Uh, They've also expressed their support for us since the election. And so I, I think it's very likely that if necessary, the state of California will help us continue to provide services to the women we've been serving here. The truth is we are so large in the state, we comprise over a third of the state's family planning program just at Planned Parenthood right now throughout the state. That's over 800,000 patients served annually. And so there is no other provider or provider group capable of absorbing that patient population. So uh, they, they won't just be doing it to demonstrate their support for Planned Parenthood, although I think they definitely do support us. They'll be doing it because we're an important part of the safety net here in California, and the truth is they they really, I think, will understand the need to keep us intact, or patients simply will go unserved, and I don't think that Governor Brown would ever want that to happen.
0: Well, I, I know that other states that have constitutionally protected abortion on demand that they don't have the economy of scale that California has. But I, I don't know if off the top of your head, do you have any idea either how many states or uh, which states? I know Washington state. They It was codified before the Roe v. Wade ruling. But do you have an idea how many states are where this would not change were there to be a, a Supreme Court decision reversing Roe v. Wade?
1: Well, it's a little unclear um, which states, but I think the easy way to think about it is that abortion would likely remain legal on the Pacific Coast and in the Northeast um there are some country, some states in the middle of the country where it's uh, less clear what would happen but it could be that severe that abortion is really only available on the uh, on our coast here and and in the northeast and that would mean a lot of women having to travel a very long way i mean i mean we already have a situation where a third of women in this country live in a county where there is no abortion provider so uh, women are already in a situation in many places where they have to travel but this would obviously be a much more severe situation. And obviously the women who are affected most are are poor women. So as I mentioned, should we get down that road? And I certainly sincerely hope we don't get there. We will plan on making more abortion services available. We will also be reaching out to our donors to talk about creating travel funds. And uh, we would be setting up services to make sure that if women need to get here, to get the services they need. We can help them get here and make sure those services get provided. But, frankly, it will be a a really big burden on the Planned Parenthood affiliates along the coasts, frankly, because we'd have to serve the entire country.
0: Travel agency wasn't what you put in the charter years ago.
1: Not at all. And, as I said, we're a few steps away from that happening, so I'm hoping that that doesn't come to fruition. But we're thinking about it. We're planning for how we might respond to it. Um, We're actually in the process of a a major renovation of our main site where we do abortions here in Orange County. And uh, we've done recent renovations in San Bernardino County as well. So our facilities are in great shape. We have a wonderful staff. Uh, We we could step up to meet the need if we had to.
0: Well, here's your chance. uh, Where would you like to direct listeners to stepping up, both in terms of donations pro bono services where do you want them to go and what maybe what concentration are you wanting to really uh, promote here
1: well uh you know obviously we welcome any end of year donations that listeners might want to make and uh, we have our own local website called healthwomentrust.org where they can go to make donations through uh, online if they want to get involved in advocacy work um There's another website, which is communityactionfund.org, and there's a variety of ways people could get involved. You know, they can make a donation. They can call and offer to volunteer, and we have had an overwhelming number of volunteers. It's just the the outpouring of support from the community has been amazing. Um, They can certainly follow and support us on social media. That's really more and more important these days. And also they can throw a house party. You know, many people might feel like, oh, I'm not really in a position to make a a donation of any consequence. But what a lot of folks are doing right now is getting 10, 20, 30 of their friends and neighbors together, throwing a house party to support Planned Parenthood, asking everyone to kick in a little bit. And uh, some of those house parties are remarkably successful, and it's a way that someone can both – Promote what we're doing, educate people because we're happy. If someone wants to do a house party, we have a number of folks who can come out and speak to them, including me, um, and educate friends and family about what's going on and what they can do to support Planned Parenthood, and they can bring n- new folks into, uh, you know, donating to Planned Parenthood and supporting us. So they can do any of those things, and um, we would we welcome any involvement on any of those levels.
0: Well, I sure want the cognitive dissonance to end with what is actually going on at all of the Planned Parenthood affiliates and what the vitriol is that that begrudges these productive public health agendas that you're you're meeting it's just it's un, unbearable to watch that dissonance well that but there was the, the happy note was all the wonderful things that people can do that we can conclude on John Dunn thanks for your time uh, returning to the show
1: you're very welcome Claudia
0: John Dunn is President, CEO of Planned Parenthood of Orange and San Bernardino Counties posting us about Planned Parenthood amidst the new political realities. And John, I wanna wish you happy holidays.
1: Thank you, you too.
0: Thank you. We'll be right back with our own Dr. Francisco Ayala, and he'll talk about science and faith along in the next half hour. Thank you everybody for staying with us. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My next guest, it's a real honor and a privilege I've been waiting for for quite a long time is having on my next guest, Dr. Francisco Ayala, professor in evolutionary biology, philosopher, and by far the most dapper commuter between University Hills and UCI campus. Today, he carries essential themes as he reconciles the coexistence of science and faith. Originally raised in Madrid, Spain, he was ordained as a Dominican priest in 1960, but left the priesthood that same year. After graduating from the University of Salamanca, he moved to the U.S., in 61 to study for a PhD at Columbia University. His research most recently focuses on the origin and evolution of introns and on the evolution and functional significance of one pseudogenes and two ectopic expression. His research group is also concerned with gene organization, gene regulation, and the origin function and evolution of small RNAs, particularly in parasitic protozoa. Dr. Ayala has published 950 publications and 30 books. He is the fellow of the Academy of Arts and Sciences, the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, and many more in the U.S. and around the world. He was awarded a Many, many awards, but um, primarily I'm going to mention he was awarded the Templeton Prize in 2010 where he was cited for his, and I quote, his achievements as an evolutionary geneticist and for his opposition to the entanglement of science and religion while also calling mutual respect between the two, end of quote. Dr. Ayala was a chief witness in the creationist trial in Arkansas in 1981 that prevented religion from being taught as science in the classroom. It is in that domain that we shall venture today an ardent and generous benefactor of the UCI campus. Dr. Ayala has his name affixed to the UCI Science Library and most recently the School of Biological Sciences. The main focus of this interview will be Dr. Ayala's Darwin's Gift to Science and Religion. His most recently, though, book is more expansive, and it's entitled Evolution, Explanation, Ethics, and Aesthetics Towards a Philosophy of Being. He comes to us today about four doors up the hill from the station. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Dr. Ayala.
2: Good morning, Claudia. It is a pleasure to be talking to you.
0: Kindly thank you. So I'd like to know briefly what happened in 1960, around that time, that led you away from the clerical path and beckoned you to evolutionary biology.
2: Well, the moving away from the religious path, as you put it, has to do with the fact that gradually over the last few years, particularly the last 1950s and, of course, the beginning of the 60s, my... um, ideas concerning religion and my life as a Dominican priest have gradually changed. So I had discussed them with my superiors, who, however, encouraged me to stay two or three more years uh, until eventually I, I would leave if I didn't change my mind. And I didn't change my mind, so I eventually left the priesthood.
0: So, your book, Darwin's Gift, it begs the question about whether we still are training or educating intellectuals with your depth and range. Do you think that the students that are now amidst us, do you think that there are minds that are being trained who could write such a book in the future?
2: Very interesting question. I am sure there will be, People who would be able to write that kind of book in the fe- in the future, as there are uh, scholars, philosophers, theologians, and particularly scientists who are still writing books on that general topic or general topics that I cover in the book. I'm an optimist, so I think that the education of our students at the university level and at the PhD level. Uh, continues to be good, or continues to be uh, becomes better with time. So there will be people able to write very distinguished books dealing with the issues that I deal with in that book.
0: I I ask that because I I found that the 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 sheer act of reading Darwin's gift with. You're you're firing up so many synapses in our imaginations and our intellect. It's such an important exercise for all of us to go through. I just, it's sort of a, it's a necessary component in civilization that that ideas can be looked at with such thoroughness and at such a level of, of, of intensity that you're directing it. I, it's just a marvel. Well, oh, and I did want to find out, so do you know of whether... Darwin's Gift is a required reading anywhere on the UCI campus?
2: I don't know, and I don't think so right now, because it was a required reading in at least one class, but actually that has been, that book has been replaced by a more recent book that I have just published, which you mentioned in in the introduction, you know, Evolution, Explanation, Ethics and Aesthetics, it covers the same issues, by and large, but at a slightly more advanced level. Right. And I think is better for our students.
0: Okay. Well, that's good to have more of that available. As far back as the 4th the and 5th century, St. Augustine pointed out that science and religion are in different realms and do not contradict one another. Here we are, so many centuries later, we're still trying to come to terms with that. Well,
2: that's unfortunate, and in my view, it is due mostly to lack of education, both religious and scientific. Uh, Religious, because when people attack evolution on the grounds of their faith in the truth of the Bible, they forget what St. Augustine said and many other authorities, and in the 20th century, several popes, that the Bible is not a book about religion. Uh, As uh, John Paul II, the Pope, said, the Bible is written not to tell us how the the heavens were made, but how we should behave to go to heaven. So the problems are many. One of them is that if one takes the 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 Bible literally as a book of science, then it's self-destructive. You know, in chapter first of the book of Genesis, yes. it starts. This is how God created the world, and God creates the light, creates the planets, creates the sun, uh, and on the sixth day, God creates man and a woman. In, there, in there, and then, he, he rested. Chapter second, just a few verses later, there is a narrative that starts, this is how God created the world. And the first thing that God does is created the man, a human being who is a man. Then starts to create the stars and the planets and the gardens and the other animals. And then at the end, God puts the man to sleep, takes a rib from him, and create, creates a woman out of the rib. Well, those two narratives can, are not consistent in the scientific sense. They are not literally saying the same thing. They right. are symbolically they are saying the same thing. And from the religious point of view, namely that we are creatures of God. In both cases, we are creatures of God. But the process by which human beings came about cannot be true in both cases
0: and that's it's not a trivial contradiction it's really it's, a, it's a, one seldom sort of sees those put together and brings out that contradiction it's really quite extraordinary
2: it well, is the, also also if you allow me to interrupt oh, Claudia, no, no, please. there are actually five other narratives yes. throughout the Bible of how good c- God created the world and every one of them is inconsistent with all the others including the two at the beginning of Genesis. Again, the mistake here is to take the Bible as if it were a book of science and people on one hand they are not well aware, they don't know well the Bible and the interpretation by theologians and the Fathers of the Church and the Popes of the Bible and certainly they don't understand science because the evidence for evolution is so overwhelming and one could not possibly deny evolution any more than we could deny that the earth goes around the sun
0: and that is a point that you make when you're discussing the meaning of theory what theory really means and that the the creationist belief system tries to use the word theory in their belief system which is a it's falsely equivalent with The evolutionary theory, the the use of theory in terms of evolution. Tell us about the basis for that false equivalency.
2: Well, in science, we use the word theory properly when we have a set of statements concerning the world that we know to be correct, and they are very well systematically organized and consistent with each other, and that's what we imply when we say the theory of evolution in common language people very often use the word theory to imply something that it is not well known like i have a theory as to, to who was the driver of that truck in berlin that that killed yes. 12 people and mm. hurt many others or i have a theory about what is going to happen next year uh, as a result of the uh, heating of the planet, in, you know, with respect, say, to the ice uh, in the polar, uh, in the po- in the poles. So, you know, we use theory in common language to refer to incomplete or inconsistent knowledge or something which is just purely a guess. But it's not the word the way we use it in science. So, when we say, speak of the theory of evolution, it does not mean that it's just a guess or oh, a unfounded series of statements not at all yes
0: and i i really was uh fascinated uh, you made the case that had charles darwin been aware of the work that gregor mendel a geneticist had been working toward that their their work had had been corrupt they would have corroborated one another and the result might have been that we would have averted the path that we're going down now that we could have beat back creationist intelligent design beliefs?
2: Well, the important thing here is that the genetics and the principles of genetics, of the theory, if you want, of genetics, as discovered initially by Gregor Mendel, is now very well corroborated. And it also is so consistent with the theory of evolution by natural selection, which is the fundamental concept of Darwin, that Darwin would have been very uh, satisfied if he would have known about Mendel's work. And of course, that's what happened at the beginning of the 20th century, actually in the year 1900, when three scientists independently discovered the laws of Mendel. And then comes the integration of the laws of heredity, the laws formulated by Mendel with the theory of natural selection. And that's what we often call the modern theory of evolution, which integrates the two of them. I think uh, Darwin would have been very, very happy if he would have known of Mendel's work.
0: And that would have might have made history entirely different you yes. you're you make the a really interesting case in how that was a matter, maybe a matter of 7 years that there would have been an opportunity and, and you made notes mention of Charles Darwin had like in his uh, his inbox if he had internet then in his inbox when he died were, were was work that Gregor Mendel had sent him so there there was a I guess a, Mr Mendel had made an effort to Help corroborate what uh, Charles Darwin was working on. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Dr. Francisco Ayala, professor of evolutionary biology and philosopher, a major voice on the ethical issues related to the study of human evolution, and a frequent spokesperson in the debate between evolution and creationism. Well, I'd like to have you talk as a as an evolutionary biologist. We're talking about there are it's it's that imperfect design, not perfect designer. <laughs> the imperfect design, which can explain what kinds of remnants there are in our bodies that would and and what's what's happening in this sort of evolutionary uh, sort of engineer. Like you mentioned, engineering starts with raw materials, but evolution only modifies what's already there. And you've offered some interesting examples in humans.
2: Yes. Let me back up a little oh, bit. Please. <laughs> as you know, sometime in the 19 very late 70s, 1970s, the idea of the theory of creationism was introduced and was required to teach to be taught in the schools was introduced in several states. That was eventually shown by the Supreme Court of the United States as uh, improper because that was a religious theory and they could not not be taught as science in science classes. Then the people who were in favor of what sometimes we call creationism invented this thing of intelligent design, that everything in the world is designed by an intelligent being, but they would not mention God because then it would become a religious theory and then it would be rejected of the possibility of teaching at the, in science classes as it has happened with creationism well so when I, they speak of intelligent design this creationism I call it imperfect design or incomplete design because we are very poorly designed in many ways we have many things well designed but I will start with what is one of the most shocking yes. problems of design the uh, about 20% of all human pregnancies end in a spontaneous abortion because they, uh, do, during the first two months of pregnancy. There's about 20 million to 30 million abortions per year, and that is because of the effect in the reproductive system of women when the chromosomes get us sorted out in the formation of the ovule, of the egg, errors happen. And then the child, which is is conceived, has these problems, and eventually, sometimes very early, sometimes after a few weeks, dies because it cannot develop. So we cannot blame God for 20 million abortions per year. Uh, That's a blasphemy. And, of course, we have many other uh, defects, you know, as uh, uh, you know, we our teeth are a bit too large for the size of uh, of our jaw, so we have to go to the dentist to straighten them up. So why would not have God, if He was the designer of the of humans, designed the the mouth of human beings better? And then we probably we have problems with uh, almost everything you can think of. The, the you know, the spine, the backbone, as you know, is such that very often, particularly in late age, we have back problems. And this, again, because of the effect of the sign, because our backbone was originally functioning as a walking mostly in a horizontal position before our ancestors became uh, uh, bipedal. They right. started to have an erect posture one day most of the time which started to happen about 6 million years ago or so. So the, the backbone has evolved, has changed, but it still is imperfect. And you know that there are many other things that I mention yes. in my book that are badly designed. They blame God for being a very, very bad engineer because they don't mention God. They call, refer to as the intelligent designer, but what they have in mind, of course, is is got and it is not intelligent design it's imperfect design
0: and i want to uh, really highly recommend the read of dr ayala's darwin's gift to science and religion and he explains in not uh, in just this case uh, not only in uh, why the job it, bone it has evolved to this extent and and the others he explains all that and they're just such beautifully crafted expressions and explanations and it's a it's a renaissance pleasure and i hope that folks can find their buy their copy of this or find the, the it's just out it's i think it has a publishing date of 2017 but evolution explanation ethic and aesthetics toward a philosophy of being dr ayala i wish we had more time there is so much and of that you have given to science and science and faith and faith this is hardly doing any justice not even a, a, a hundredth of of what your contributions have been over time and i i i just want to tell you what a pleasure what an honor it's been thanks so very much for being my guest today
2: thank you very much claudia it has been a pleasure speaking with you and Responding to your very intelligent questions. Thank you.
0: You are a gracious and a remarkable man. Thank you very much. And Dr. Ayala, I'm wishing you a very, very happy holiday.
2: Happy holidays to you also, Claudia.
0: Thank you so much. Next week, we'll hear from Emily Mayon to present all those delectable possibilities that await us at the Bowers over the holidays and into the new year. Talk to you next week. Thank you for listening. Happy holidays, everyone. All generations praise continually.
1: Your son shall be Emmanuel, by seers foretold, most highly.